Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm great. Just happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, hey, folks. Uh, we t- so we taped this segment on Sunday, uh, and after we taped it, uh, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., listened to us and made some changes uh, somehow. I don't know how she got a copy, an advanced copy of this this podcast. Uh, but Alyssa, what's going on with movie theaters in, in D.C. now? So as of Monday, March 15th, movie theaters in D.C. can reopen with capacity limits of either sort of 25% of the capacity they were allowed per room or 25 people per theater, whichever number is smaller. Um, It's not clear yet what local movie theaters will actually reopen and on what timeline, given that most of them have been shuttered for a year at this point. Um, I imagine they're going to have to hire staff back, uh, get their operations running, clean out those disgusting popcorn machines, and also figure out which movies anyone in Hollywood wants to give them to screen. Um, you know, and we've we've lost the um, the AMC in Cleveland Park. We've lost the AMC in uh, Friendship Heights, where uh, the three of us on the show used to go watch a lot of movies. And so I am just hoping that someone gets open soon because I just... All I want to do is get back into a theater um, and argue with people at the best about the movie that I've just seen. Yes, hopefully, hopefully they will reopen and people will be able to go see Tenet and IMAX. You know, yes. since the DC, the DC people were deprived of that. Uh, so anyway, uh, on to controversies and controversies. Uh, so first up in controversies and controversies, here's something I found kind of shocking. Theaters, movie theaters in D.C., in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, they are still closed. Uh, New York City has reopened. Liam Neeson welcomed people back to the theaters and told them that he would kill them if they didn't come, so they all showed up. Uh, <laughs> he theaters, will punch the virus in the face. Theaters, theaters in California are reopening. Uh, where I live in Texas, theaters have actually been open uh, basically since May now. I mean, some some places have closed down. I've mentioned before, but the uh, Alamo Draft Houses in the Dallas region have closed because there's nothing new to watch, and the guy who owns it got tired of losing money here. Um, uh, but hopefully they will reopen soon. Uh, the but the 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 nation's capital still has not reopen their theaters and again pretty surprising stuff because my understanding is that indoor dining has been going on for quite some time and as we know dining indoors uh the sort of behavior that you engage in a lot of close talking a lot of eating and chewing and expelling air and and breathing in air um but most importantly people kind of facing each other and they're in smaller spaces and it's it's just it's bad for the airflow and everything those have been open those have been open. Theaters have not been. Uh, so, guys, I have a question. As as the D.C. area uh, folks who are on this show still, what is it like living in a fascist uh, police state <laughs> that won't let you go see art on big screens? Alyssa. It's pretty frustrating. Um, the last movie I saw in a theater was uh, was Tenet. Um when I had to drive way into Virginia and actually rent out a theater to see it. Um, And I have been sort of living on the fumes of that experience for more than half a year now. And I'm really, really, really eager to get back into theaters. And look, I think part of what has been frustrating overall is the feeling that Decisions are being made about what can be open and why are being made at a fairly granular level, but not granular enough. Um, you know, DC was slow, was slow to reopen outdoor parks last year, even after it was fairly clear that um, 
you know, outdoor transmission was just not nearly as significant a risk. And, you know, my husband and I, and then once they reopened the parks, they were very slow to get the playgrounds open, even though it was legal to do so, which involved in our family a certain amount of like hopping fences to get our yayas out because you have to do that. The National Zoo is closed, even though substantial portions of that can be done outside. And movie theaters are just not being treated like a priority. Um, DC is being very conservative in some respects. Um, in part because, you know, proportionally, we've had a fair number of cases and we have re areas in the city where COVID just does not seem to be particularly well controlled and where people are not getting vaccinated fast. It's also pretty clear that the city is following federal guidelines a little bit more closely than some other jurisdictions. But yeah, I mean, I really, really wish that we could, the city government could look at the relative risk of things a little bit better and open movie theaters up because... You know, the city's already lost the AMC in Cleveland Park, which was a historic theater. I mean, Star Wars had one of its premieres there. Yeah. Um, 2001 had its, yeah. Uh, yeah. had its premiere there on the big the big screen at the Uptown. You know, we've lost that. The, the AMC where all of us used to go for screenings in Friendship Heights is now closed permanently. Um, and so the number of theaters in the city is shrinking. Um, the, you know, the sort of last independent theater, the Avalon and Chevy Chase is kind of holding on thanks to... Um, you know, a, a neighborhood fundraising campaign and the, some streaming programming. But, you know, the, the number of places to see a movie in D.C. is shrinking. And it would be really nice if we could arrest that at some point because I miss going to the movies a lot. Well, I, and the issue here, you know, let's let's be honest, is even even places where theaters are open, like in Texas, there aren't a ton of people going to the theaters yeah. because there's not a ton of stuff out there. Right. But it's a chicken and the egg problem, isn't it, Peter? Yeah, it's definitely a chicken and an egg problem here. Um, I mean, it's not just that, but but that's a big part of the issue is why would theaters bother to reopen? And right is, is sort of a, a question you have to ask when there's so little new material being released and when the appetite for seeing that material is so clearly uh, so clearly low, um, even in places where theaters are open. As you said, people are not going to see movie theaters. I, I will just say that, so I, I saw Tenet uh, with Alyssa last year, um, and that's the last movie I saw in a theater, but the last movie I saw in a theater in a way that I would consider normal was The Hunt. Um, uh, the I think the second week of March of last year, saw it at a screening, right? So not exactly normal uh, for, it was normal well, for no, a normal, normal for way you. for critics to see it, right? And I just sort of drove up to a movie theater and, and got out and watched it with 40 other critics in the middle of the afternoon. Um, and we've talked about that movie. It, uh, it's one that I both enjoyed in some ways and also found frustrating. But this has been about the longest stretch that I've gone in, certainly in my adult life, but maybe since I was nine or 10 years old of not seeing movies, even when I was a kid, I saw, at, you know, at least a, a dozen or so movies a year. And by the time I was 10 or 12, I was going to the movies as often as I could. So I tried to get there every week and maybe didn't quite always make it, but it was rarely more than a month that I'd go without seeing movies. And it's just so it's it's strange and it's demoralizing and it it's sort of decentering. Right. It, it feels like I've lost a part of myself. And I know that's a strange thing to say, but I, I think even though I knew how much I liked movies and even though I obviously thought of myself as a movie person, I didn't realize sort of how much my weekly, daily sort of sense of self and sense of uh, sense of time and, you know, even like my my kind of happiness 
was pegged to the fact that I knew that most every week on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday night, I was going to go to a critic screening and maybe I would hate the movie. Maybe I would love it. But it was a possibility for something great to happen every single time. And I just, I, I just feel like there's just a big hole in my life, in, in me right yeah. now, in a way that's very strange in part because this isn't a thing you expect to lose, right? Like you, you, you think unless there's literally like a massive land war that sweeps across the country, movie theaters are going to stay open because movie theaters have always stayed open. And they didn't here. And it's real weird. And it's, it's not been fun. And it's a it's, big social loss, too. I mean, yeah. for longtime listeners of the podcast know the three of us became friends in the first place because we just sort of always gravitated to each other at screenings and then started going out for dinner beforehand or beers after at, at you know, a bunch of the terrible restaurants uh, around that AMC uh, in Friendship Heights. But The one that know, was I, called, like, Chatter Doodles or something? <laughs> it was Chadwick's, then Chatter. I mean, that was a place that knew how to ruin a hamburger, right? And it's just really hard <laughs> really, to do. Yeah, they really knew hard. how to ruin a hamburger and make it take 45 minutes to cook. Yeah. Exactly. Well, those two things may be related. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, movies have always been a huge, not just sort of artistic and social thing for me, uh, not just artistic and sort of experiential, but social thing for me. I was talking to a friend over the pandemic, and he reminded me the first time we hung out. This is a guy who officiated at my wedding. We've been friends for 20 years. The first time we hung out was at a um, you know a screening of triplet, the Triplets of Belleville in college. Um, my husband and I got together while we were you know after a period of being friends in part because he was like my weekly date to screenings um and that was how we spent a lot of time together yeah Um, one of the first dates i went on with my wife was to see a a daytime press screening of the dark knight and uh and right it was a it was it was a great movie and it was great to talk about afterwards and it was like oh here is someone you can connect to over a shared experience and it's it's movies in a theater in a way that it's just not true at home. Movies in a theater are a shared experience in a way of connecting with other people. Um, even if you're not necessarily talking to them, even if you don't have that conversation afterwards, but especially if you're a movie person who sort yeah. of lives not just to watch the movie, but to to think about it and talk about it and be excited or sometimes be irate afterwards. And that just hasn't happened. Well, let me let me ask. I, let me bring it back to to the the main question here, which is: Do we have any idea when DC, DC's government what are what are the what are the guidelines in place here? What do they need to see to say, all right, we're going to open movie theaters at you know twenty five or fifty percent or whatever? So I mean, theor- like theoretically, like it- we're getting new guidance early next week from the mayor on more stuff reopening in general. Um, I know that I mean DC's case rate has been sort of stuck for a while. Um. We're still clocking like 150, 160 cases a day, which doesn't sound like a ton, you know, given the overall scope of the epidemic, but it's a number that just is sort of persistently not coming down. And um, the hospitalization rate- We've come down from our peaks in January, but we have not come down to like a new low at all. Yeah. And, you know, I if I am- a public policymaker and am focusing on, you know, getting more kids in schools and preserving the restaurant industry's jobs, which in DC have been a huge part of the city's revitalization. Um, movie theaters probably do feel like a lower priority. I don't agree with that calculation emotionally, but I understand it on sort of an economic and sort of overall cost benefit analysis is, basis. But, yeah, but see, but this is like, this is, 
I understand why DC's restaurants are open. It's because the restaurant lobby is exceptionally powerful in DC. The restaurant lobby has a lot of pull with the, the city council and the mayor. It's and, a, also a, and, represents a lot of jobs in a big sure, tax base. Sure. It, it, I, I, again, they represent a lot. They have a lot of pull for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, that doesn't change the fact that it is, it's just totally uh, opposed to the science of all this. I mean, like, like I, I, the thing that drives me the craziest about this is that we have we've had four or five years of people being like, I believe in science. I am a science. I am a science first person. And and anytime the discussion of, you know, what opens and when comes up, people are like, ah, theaters don't matter. But but like even leaving aside whether or not you can watch stuff at home, the science on this is like relatively uh, on the side of the theaters. Like you it's just not a place where people are catching the disease a lot. Uh, and that that is. That is the thing I think that drives me the craziest about all of this. That said, again, I live in Texas where uh, I've been able to get my kids to school. You know, I like I couldn't imagine living in a city uh, or a state where people just couldn't send their kids to school. It's crazy. It I, like it drive. It, I like literally cannot imagine it. I would have gone insane by now. It's been quite frustrating. I don't have kids, but um, I mean, just I know from colleagues, the school thing has been quite frustrating. It's been quite frustrating to see, you know, theaters remain closed, even as New York and Los Angeles, which are other big blue states, which are not, you know, hyper conservative uh, places that have been uh, really loose about opening things, right? Uh, they've announced that they're reopening or have actually started the, the yeah. reopening process in, in some cases. With the pace that vaccinations are going, it's not going to be too much longer. Um, and, you know, I, I'm frustrated right now, but I just, I, I can't see that DC will keep movie theaters closed um, much beyond June. And I hope that they will be open, at least in some capacity, by the beginning of May, which is when um, Black Widow is supposed to come out. Uh, Disney's saying that it's going to come out in theaters. They're saying that and that's going to give us, you know, sort of the launch of the summer movie season in a way that we didn't have last year that I'm really looking forward to to having back and to having again. Um, and I, I hope that DC allows that to happen because vaccinations are 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 continuing uh, by that point they will be uh, available uh, to everybody in the country um and that is the time to to start opening things up i think even uh, if not before yeah uh, so what do we think is it a controversy or a controversy that uh, dc has not reopened their movie theaters peter certainly a controversy for me Alyssa. seconded Give me back my theaters. All I want to do is go to Landmark Atlantic Plumbing and order some frozen junior mints, maybe even two packages of them, and watch something loud. It's a controversy. Quit being a police state, DC. Get get it together. <laughs> the answer the answer here is DC statehood. Just yeah. obviously. Uh, is it? Is that really what we? A hundred percent. Give me a break. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about awards season movies that have faded from memory and did not get the love they deserved at the Oscar nomination uh, process this year. So make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com and check that out. Now, on to the main event, Raya and the Last Dragon. So here's the thing about this movie is that this feels much more like a DreamWorks movie than a Disney movie. And let me explain what I mean by that. So Raya and the Last Dragon uh, is about a, a girl in a mythical Southeastern Asian uh, uh, nation uh, that has been 
that has been split apart from other other parts of the, the, the nation because of terrible things that happen with dragons. I don't know. I'm not going to explain it to you. Uh, but the, the, the problem with this movie is that all of the characters have uh, what is known as dream smirk, which is the kind of constant uh, kind of smirking, winking, weird little face that DreamWorks characters do in lieu of having actual emotions. And this is one reason why I've never really cared for the DreamWorks movies. Uh, in this movie... Uh, you you have a bunch of characters who are essentially written to behave like I want to say eight year olds on a Nickelodeon show as opposed to characters from a mystical faraway kingdom. Just one, for instance, uh, there's a there's a dragon, the last dragon, the titular last dragon, uh, who is played by Aquafina, who at one point, as she is discussing uh, what her kind of you know. Uh, uh, mode of operation is like with Raya, who is voiced by Kelly Marie Tran in this film. Uh, she she starts talking about how you know you know how there's always that one lazy kid in the group project, and I'm like, what group projects are these people working on in the you know mystical faraway southeastern Asian nation? I don't understand what's happening here. Uh, and the, the the movie's filled with things like that. Yes, there there's a scene where an eight year old shrimp boat operator refers to himself as a chief financial officer. Yes, and it's just like. Why? No, stop, Why? please. Just and, terrible. And look, I, I get it. I know Disney has done things like this in the past. For instance, Aladdin, which, you know, we, we grew up and, and loved, uh, had Robin Williams doing all sorts of, you know, funny Robin Williams things that had ties to modernity that wouldn't have made sense in, in, in the faraway uh, Arab country that Aladdin was set. But also in. he's but, Robin Williams, right? But he's Robin Williams. He's doing Robin Williams things, right. Uh, so anyway, this... The, the, the I'm movie... really disappointed in the lack of William F. Buck impressions in this yes. movie <laughs> that would have made everything much better but but the but like you know the the the, the issue here uh, with with uh, ryan the last dragon is that every single line out of every single character's mouth annoyed me they all annoy every single thing that these characters said just kind of irked me and uh, i don't enjoy being irked i don't i don't mind you know kitty movies necessarily i really like moana uh which is a fine child's movie uh frozen is tolerable, uh, more or less. Um, but this movie just does not work for me on any level. Uh, am I am I wrong here, guys? What have I what have I missed? What am I what am I missing about this amazing Disney movie that is crashing at the box office? And I would be very curious if people are shelling out thirty dollars to watch on Disney Plus. I hated this movie so much, um, and I hated it as a parent, but more than that, as someone who has spent a lot of my career thinking about kids literature and movies and the sort of what it means to respect child audiences and to make movies that an entire family can watch and what i hate about this movie is that it has contempt for both its child audience and its adult one um it assumes that all kids need to be entertained it's like a bunch of lisa frank looking flashy dragon colors uh bright colors flashy things cute animals um but no sort of plot or particularly sophisticated ideas and it assumes that adults wouldn't be interested in anything that is particularly seen from a childish perspective or engages with the big emotions that kids have and instead need to be fed a line of just terrible jokes to sort of tolerate spending an hour and 45 minutes with their kids it's just 
there's like a there's something nasty behind the impulses that converge in this movie and that's and when you look at what Pixar has been doing for the last 20 years they make the opposite set of assumptions right they assume that kids will be interested in strongly developed characters who tackle big often frightening emotions in fact that what they need is stories that help them deal with emotions that are sort of emergent in them that are big and are difficult to manage. And they assume that parents are going to be engaged by wholesome stories about big questions that are beautifully done and rendered with sophistication and wit. And that to me is not just more artistically appealing, but it is more sort of morally and emotionally appealing than anything that happens in this film at all. Um, It was just... I just hated it. Um, I thought it was really awful. I want to I want to tease that out just for a second, Peter. Before we come to you, Alyssa, what, what is what's the big difference here between this and Soul, for instance? I mean, I I feel like I we watched Soul and we talked about it, and I I like that movie a million times more than this. And I I I and I, I don't know I don't know what exactly. I, I, I have a hard time kind of pinning what what my issue with with this is compared to that. So I think. Um, Part of what works particularly well about Soul in contrast to this is that um, you have two main characters, an, an adult and effectively a child, who are both dealing with a really difficult set of emotions. The child character kind of doesn't want to move on to adulthood and, in fact, is sort of anxious about the benchmarks for success that adults keep setting for her, right? I mean, she doesn't want, she, you know, has this history of, uh, you know, driving crazy all of the spirits of geniuses past who keep trying to instill her with a purpose. Um, she just sort of, she wants to be a kid. She wants to be stuck and she you know, wants to be a child effectively in some way and keeps getting sort of pushed out of that. And the adult character, um, by contrast, has gotten sort of very far away from a kind of childish sense of wonder and an ability to be happy where he is. He's sort of constantly detached and wanting something different. And those are sets of emotions that are relevant to both sets of uh, viewers. You know, children can both understand the idea of being sort of pushed too fast and taken out of the moment and the idea of wanting something that's beyond your grasp, even if it's just, you know, I really want to go down the big slide, but I can't make it up those stairs and they feel overwhelming instead of, you know, I want to be a jazz pianist, but instead I am stuck teaching at this school and I don't see what's in front of me. And adults can understand both the like, I've sort of, you know, stalled out at this point in my career, or this isn't maybe what I want. I really wish that I could remember what it felt like to be a kid again. Um, and so it's very sort of engaged with both of those sets of emotions. Um, you know, Raya and the Last Dragon theoretically has some big emotions. Like, you know, Raya is sad that she was betrayed by a friend and, um, you know, ha- has lost her father because of this mistake she made. But the characters are sort of introduced so fleetingly and shallowly that you aren't really... The emotions are more stated than really developed. Yeah. Um, and so... and. So they aren't, and they aren't necessarily presented, the emotions themselves are not necessarily what's big and scary, right? You're almost, you know, if if the key moment in soul is, you know, a, like a maple seed falling from a tree and the sort of beauty of that, Raya is constantly kind of distracting you with the, um, you know, the 
purple flashy stuff that is the theoretical villain or dragon magic or sort of frenetic jokes. Um, And so it doesn't lean into and provide space for that deeper sense of emotional engagement. Does that make what I'm saying a little bit clearer? Totally. Uh, Totally. Peter, did, were you able to connect with a single character in this movie? I like I, I you know, one, one thing that Alyssa says that is absolutely true is that you, you are basically just kind of shoved into these characters and you say, all right, these two uh, girls are going to be friends, but now they're enemies. Uh, 30 seconds. They're friends for 30 seconds and then they're enemies for 30 seconds. And like, it's just not compelling in any way. I connected deeply with the giant roly poly. Who is what just is that, is that what is that a real animal? I don't understand what that thing was. Who is, what is that? Who thing? is just the kind of standard Disney dog friend uh, here played? I voiced by Alan Tudyk, actually, even though all he does is make like little funny dog noises. And, you know, I, I thought he was pretty cute. I believe he's supposed to be an armadillo. And his yeah. nickname actually is Tuck Tuck, which are the um, sort of small like mini cabs that you see um in a lot of southeast uh asian countries where this is broadly supposed to be set um they're often attached either to a bicycle or a motorcycle um and they're fun to ride in um so i i agree with both of uh you guys uh in in many ways i don't think i hated it quite as much as either of you guys did i found it exasperating though um all of this sort of uh chatty pop culture laden kid talk that just doesn't connect with the setting or the story uh, at all right it's i think you can make that sort of thing work right like there's aladdin there's kung fu panda obviously this movie is trying to be a sort of update on Aladdin in a lot of ways, except that Robin Williams can just get away with stuff that no one else can. It's not that Aquafina isn't good. It's that Aquafina isn't Robin Williams because no one is Robin Williams. Not even Eddie Murphy, who Disney brought on a couple of years after Aladdin to play a a funny dragon character or whatever in, uh, in the original Mulan. Not even Eddie Murphy, one of the great comics of the last... 40 years was as good as Robin Williams was at just sort of literally being an animated character. Just talking. Right. At just, just, just talking and talking. At just sort of like the stuff that would come out of his mouth uh, freeform was just incredible, right? There was too much material. Uh, he was famously the first character who they animated to the voice track rather than having the voice track work to the animation. Um, and that, that, sort of thing just doesn't work here though um i do think uh you guys compared this to soul i think um uh, in some ways the uh the movie that this reminded me of actually was coco um a movie that i really liked that i also watched uh, uh this week um and there were there were so many similar elements if you think about it right so you've got uh once again you've got this intro exposition se- sequence that's uh just like in coco where you've got uh these sort of like paper you know sort of beautifully um cut paper strips that are sort of telling the backstory of this kid and his family um here you have once again sort of these cultural artifacts that have been turned into a an an ex, uh, you know an expository introduction uh you have this drama of parental longing and loss Right. And it's all about sort of finding your parent figure. And in some ways, uh, Disney here is sort of drawing from from Star Wars as well and from sort of Star Warsian lessons, uh, you know, about storytelling and what works in blockbuster stories. Uh, also a kid with deep talent. Right. And and some moxie. And then you have, you know, also in, in Coco, you had a, a funny dog buddy. And here you have our your funny, cute uh, roly-poly buddy who is just a big dog that you can ride in a ball. Um, and for whatever reason, 
Coco works really well. It's so delightful. And this movie just doesn't get there. Um, I think I think I, I agree with Alyssa um, that it's in part because the emotions are stated rather than uh, rather than actually developed and shown. But I would put it a little bit differently. Um, what this movie doesn't do is it doesn't allow its characters, in particular Rhea, uh, its 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 titular hero, to experience anything that's really hard for her. It doesn't allow her to actually fail at something, and to right she she tries and like sometimes sometimes things are yes there are challenges right it's these the action scenes represent like here's a battle that I've got to get through, but at no point does she really deeply fail and have to reckon with her own flaws and limitations. And Pixar understands that for you to root for a hero, yes, you want these people to be powerful. Yes, you want them to be likable. You don't want them to be total losers, but you've got to have something that's really hard in your life that you're not good at, at dealing with. And both, and both of the characters in Soul have that. And I think Disney is... Disney, sort of the, the the main Disney umbrella, sort of Disney corporate, uh, and the films that they're releasing, um, the last two of them, this and Mulan, both had this problem. They didn't want their their heroes to really deal with anything that showed them to be weak in some way in in a in a moment, tr to be truly weak in a moment. And that is, you can understand that, right? Like you can understand sort of the story politics around making that decision. I think it's related to some of the reasons I didn't like Captain Marvel. Um, but I think it's a bad way to tell a story and it's a bad way to get people to relate to a character. They think that they're making this character more heroic and more relatable by making them really quite powerful. And what they're doing is making them not somebody who you who has any sort of emotional valence i mean in a way the much more interesting character in the movie is namira who you know is set up to as a child play a role in this like really profound deception of another country um and ultimately and you know sort of continues with that conditioning and then has to turn against it at the climax of the movie um, and in part because we just see more of her relationship with her mother and we see the sort of worldview that her nation has developed, her choice in the end is much more interesting, but the movie picked a different main character. And yeah. so we don't get yeah. that. I also think yeah. it's, it's a problem that the kid heroes are sort of are meant to be stand in stand ins for the kid viewers by uh, their by the fact that they are effectively kid genre fans, it's very much what Abrams, oh. what J.J. Abrams did in um, in the Force Awakens was he made all of the, the trio of young heroes basically just young millennial right or Gen Z Star Wars fans. And here once again we have kid genre fans, yeah. and I'm then the it turns a into fan necklace. Ah, yeah. the, we're right? both nerds. The bit the bit where they're standing the the dragons and like talking about how they're big nerds. I, again, everything that these characters said annoyed me to no end uh in a way in a way that i have not been annoyed since again probably Wait, are you the saying they're DreamWorks. fake dragon nerd girls <laughs> fake dragon fake nerd girls i i you know there is there there is an uh of course like kind of an, an undercurrent of um uh, all of the terrible discussions about culture and nerddom and fandom and all that uh in this because the the lead character is voiced by Kelly Marie Tran, who was famously like harassed horribly after The Last Jedi because she was forced to play a terrible, terrible character. Um, uh, Alyssa, what's could you you wanted to talk a little bit about the big uh, Hollywood Reporter uh, 
uh, cover story on her and kind of how that relates to yeah. uh, the, the making and marketing of this movie. I mean, I think that um, this movie has a sort of interesting problem in that uh, its star has a story and a set of experiences that's much more interesting than the movie itself. Um, and the movie is very much being sold, again, to like adult film Twitter audiences instead of to the families who are its ostensible market as a way to kind of make up for what happened to Tran. And it would be really nice if this were actually the sort of fantastic next role that was going to take her to another level and was sort of worthy of that kind of marketing, but it's not. And, you know, I think as much as people get frustrated with discussions of big mainstream pop culture that are filtered through the valence of politics, you can't discuss that without acknowledging that Hollywood has clambered on this bandwagon really easily and is very excited to potentially exploit the idea of political significance in any way to sell its products. Um, and I think this movie, you know, it's it, I am frustrated on Tran's behalf because I'm sure that the experience that she describes in that story of going through this really terrible wave of harassment and emerging sort of attempting to be a more independent person but also someone who kind of acknowledges that she's been hardened by the experience i'm sure that is true um but this movie doesn't make up for that and it feels like the larger giant corporation that put her in this position in the first place is kind of not serving her again and I think both she and the movie would be better off not trying to sell it as something of social significance because it's not just not that it's also not a very good movie by any standards. Um, And it's, yeah, it's just a frustrating narrative. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, you know, I, I, I looked at when we were, when we were watching it uh, this week or last week, I, I texted you guys. I was like, guess what the Rotten Tomatoes score on this is. And and you went with eighty four, which frankly strikes me as even high compared to what we were watching on the screen. I it is it is at, it, as as of as of this moment, it's at ninety four percent fresh, and it just feels like the sort of movie that gets a pass because it is supposed to get a pass. I mean, I'm I, I like I feel bad for Kelly Marie Tran because nobody should have to endure being uh, horribly sexually and racially harassed on social media. That sucks. And like that, nobody, nobody should, nobody should do that. Nobody should have to put up with that. Um, but I, 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 she has now played two kind of terrible and annoying characters. Yeah. Um, and and, I, I, and like, it's not, again, doesn't excuse the harassment, but like, I, I can't sit here and pretend that this is a good movie and that she is a compelling uh, protagonist, Rhea, uh, in this film, just because, because of what happened to her, to, to Kelly Marie Tran. And I think she would be a lot better off getting out of the Disney machine and doing some just more interesting work. Um, Also, that maybe happens at a smaller scale in part because, you know, a director like Isaac Chung or like anyone working outside the Disney studio system might give her something more interesting to do um, that is worthy of the person who comes across in that Hollywood Reporter interview. Um, But yeah, I mean, a corporate, like... (laughs) Just watching a corporation both, you know, see her harassment in a 
picture that they made and then turning that into an opportunity to market another not very good movie that they made just feels like and I, you know I don't like using the work word woke or wokeism in a derogatory fashion because I think it's you know sort of overdone but it just feels like the worst in corporate wokeism um and I really hate it yeah Peter I uh I I think that it you know it's um a mistake to have marketed the movie this way uh, and the box office numbers are bearing that out it, this movie basically died at the box office now maybe maybe Everything dies at the box sure office, but this died especially sure but hard. um but we've seen kids movies do much better at the box yeah. office in even when uh covet numbers were much worse even before there was you know a, a vaccine that was let's uh, obviously it's not widely available but it's like there's millions and millions of people who've gotten the vaccine already. Um, uh, admittedly, most of them not young parents of young kids. Uh, but it's just, it's not, this is not the sort of thing that's bringing people back to the theaters. And as you said, um, I think, Alyssa, the marketing was was not towards viewers and not towards families with kids. Yeah. It was towards film Twitter, which I don't hate film Twitter the way Sonny does, but it's just not a very Twitter. big market, right? Like, especially, I mean, and they're all childless. They're all childless. I actually want to, I want to, um, cool, not cool parents like me and Alyssa. I want to bring up uh, one other aspect that's totally unrelated to this, which is since these kids are being, you know, have been the kid heroes are, are genre fans. Right. Um, and this movie kind of partakes, uh, somewhat of the, uh, you know, Asian kind of Hong Kong-ish. I know it's not uh, Chinese, but um, you're sort of Hong Kong, you're sort of Asian uh, action cinema, right? Martial arts films. The the action scenes are so generic and so bland. And it feels like such a missed opportunity to really, to to put in some, some really cool action sequences, which you can do in animation. And yeah. like animation should in fact free filmmakers to create something, uh, you know, to create action sequences that are super engaging. This is something that Pixar does just phenomenally well. I mean, if you look at the way at the end of Toy Story 2, it's a scene of like toys running around a little luggage conveyor belt in an airport. And it's the most wondrous thing I have ever seen in my life. Right. Like and they just consistently can transform. I mean, if you uh, think about uh, the, the second uh, Finding Dory or I can't remember which it's the sequel there. Um, and like there's these incredible action scenes that take place like in miniature scale at a water park right and and they're just so smart about turning these worlds into environments for really really well staged action sequences and every single fight in this movie is so deeply generic is just boringly like box checking in in the way that it goes about staging these these fights and i just think that it's 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 so mediocre. It's so yeah. deeply mediocre. And this was, I think, maybe where I sort of disagreed with you guys. I didn't hate this movie. I just, I just sort of felt like it's just felt so uninspired. And like, like I said on I, on Twitter, it felt like this movie was running for office, right? It was just sort of like, let's pick a bunch of issues that like enough that I can like put together that enough of my constituents will like, and I'll, I'll check one box for each of them. And then they're all, they will all vote for me, but there's actually, I don't actually believe anything. I don't have like a mission here. I don't have something that I stand for or something I'm really trying to do. I'm just trying to put together enough votes to, to get 50% plus one. And this feels like this feels like the most uninspired political campaign uh yeah. of a of a movie and it 
I don't want to vote for it. And I don't want to watch this movie again. Yeah. yeah. And the, the fan culture thing also undermines one of the more interesting aspects of the movie, which is the idea that the human characters have like an actual religious veneration for dragons. And there are these moments when, you know, Nuira meets Susi when uh, Raya is trying to sort of, she's like setting up an altar and making offerings, hoping, hoping to bring um, Susi back. And turning that into fan culture just really cheapens it and undercuts the sense of awe that is possible in this movie and that also, you know, would have enhanced the cultural specificity of it in a way that was one of the film's selling points. And just the sort of cheapness of it and the idea that, you know, sort of fan culture is the highest level of belief is just (laughs) so dispiriting and just speaks to a company that has really like not just drunk but kind of lovingly mixed and spiked its own kool-aid yeah yeah uh all right so what do we think thumbs up or thumbs down on uh, raya and the last dragon thumbs down thumbs down thumbs down it's bad uh all right that is it for today's show uh if you loved it make sure to check out our members only bonus episode about the oscar nominations uh, at atma.tothebulwark.com make sure to tell your friends a strong uh, recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow a podcast audience and if we don't grow we will die and if you didn't love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at sunny bunch i will convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys next week (laughs) 